Good morning, Crossroads. Uh, it's a blessing to be with you all today. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, yes, I would love to get to know you. Um, I know I haven't been here super long, um, but it has been a blessing to get to know those of you who I have met already, and I'm just excited to continue to invest uh, here at Crossroads uh, in such a wonderful community. Uh, so my role here, I'm a pastoral intern. I'm also the director of our youth ministries. And uh, I'm also a seminary student, so I'm currently pursuing my Master's of Divinity at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, Like I said, it really is a joy to be with you today and to have the opportunity to open up God's Word to us with you all. So when I was in college, I I had the opportunity to play collegiate-level basketball. Now, before you get too impressed, let me tell you what I did on the basketball team. Uh, I was a part of what we call the scout team. So for those of you who are maybe unfamiliar with sports analogies or what a scout team is or the function of a scout team, pretty much a scout team is made up of the players at the bottom end of the roster, the ones who don't actually get to play in the games. So the, the role of this scout team is to exactly that. We would scout or we would study our upcoming opponent. So we would learn the basics of their offense, basics of their defense. And then at the very end of our practices, so we would, we would normally practice for about three hours, depending on the coach's mood that week. And then at the last like 10, 15, 20 minutes max, we would spend scrimmaging against our teammates, the ones who actually played in the games. And we would try and imitate this team that we had just scouted, our upcoming opponent, we would try to imitate them in a little bit of a scrimmage. Now, as a scout team, the players who weren't the best, obviously we didn't imitate our opponent the best, but that didn't matter because that wasn't the point. See, the point was for our teammates to get a little bit of experience and have a little bit of an idea of what it was going to be like to face our upcoming opponent and how they would defend against them and and whatnot. But according to our coach, what was most important and what we spent the two and a half or two hours and 50 minutes of practice was learning his philosophy, his system, his way that he wanted our team to play. And and his philosophy was that if we would only play his system, if if we would have that so ingrained in our minds and we would understand the system and we would play it to perfection or or close to, then the outcome would be in our favor. It wouldn't matter what the other team did, only what we did. So you might be asking yourself, okay, why did you spend all that time telling us about this? Well, you've learned a little bit about me, I guess, but... Also, this is the goal of our passage today. So Paul is going to act a little bit as as our scout team for for us, for for our church. He's going to spend the next eight or so verses kind of describing a little bit of the false teaching and, and the false teachers themselves who were coming into the church in Colossae and trying to get their agenda across. They are trying to bring in a false teaching. He spends eight verses out of 
the 95 verses that we have in Colossians. Colossians is broken up into four chapters and 95 verses. And only roughly eight of those, Paul spends dealing with the false teaching. There's some debate as to exactly what this false teaching was that was being taught in Colossians. But um, as, as we heard last week from Scott, Paul doesn't even give us a name of this false teaching. Rather, we get one side of a, of a conversation, one side of a correspondence from, from Paul to the Colossians. And we're like, why does Paul not give us exactly what is going on? Why does he not detail everything that's in these false teachings? Well, probably because it's not important for us to know every detail. Just like it wasn't important for our scout team, for the, this team that I was on that was supposed to scout our opponents, it wasn't important for us to know every detail of our upcoming opponent. Rather, it was important for us to be rooted and to know the system that our coach wanted us to play according to his philosophy. And that is what Paul is doing in this letter. He's giving a glimpse of what the Colossians are facing while keeping in mind that 90% of this letter to the Colossians, he spends proclaiming the supremacy of Christ and encouraging and exhorting the Colossians to walk in Christ and be steadfast in the truth. Paul's instructions to the Colossians and to us is to be so rooted in the gospel that any false teaching is easily easily recognized as counterfeit. Not because of our in-depth knowledge of this false teaching or uh, the things of this world, but because of our rootedness in truth. So in our passage today, Paul's going to do three things. The first thing he's going to do is he's going to give a warning about the content of the false teachers, the things that they're teaching, while reminding the Colossians of the gospel that they have already received. That's going to be verses 16 and 17. And then he's going to describe the false teachers themselves. He's going to explain what characterizes them so that the Colossians can be aware of these people who are trying to come into the church. This will be verses 18 and the very beginning of verses 19. And then, lastly, he's going to exhort the Colossians in unity and connectedness in Christ and with each other. So let's take a quick review of, of where we've been in this study of Colossians. Paul is writing, Paul is, is the author of Colossians. He's writing to a church that he has not been to himself. Yet he knows that they have received the gospel. From this guy named Epaphras. We saw that in the first chapter in verse 7. That this guy named Epaphras uh, likely heard the gospel being preached. Maybe even met Paul himself uh, in, in Ephesus. Which was just a hundred miles or so west of Colossae. So this is the outline of the book of Colossians that we have been using as we have studied this letter this summer. And we find ourselves kind of here at the end of, of section three. So thus far in, in the letter, Paul has opened up with a little bit of an in, introduction to himself and then also encouragement and prayers for the Colossians. And then he dives into proclaiming the supremacy of Christ, which is our theme for the book. 
And he gives some of the most rich Christological statements that we find in Scripture in this portion of our text. And then he's moved into encouraging and exhorting the Colossians now to be so rooted in Christ, to walk in him, to hold firmly to this gospel that they have received. And so now at the very end of this section, he's going to turn our gaze a little bit to the opposition and the temptations that the Colossians are facing. While keeping paramount this theme of holding fast to Christ. So I wanted to spend just a little bit of time reviewing where we are in Colossians and the context that that we are in because this is what informs our passage today. This is how we will understand and be able to apply our passage as we would with any text of Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Colossians 2, Verses 16 through 19, this will be our passage for today. And if you don't have your Bibles uh, and would like to follow along, the uh, words are on the screen here behind me. Let me go ahead and read. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Church, this is the word of the Lord. The first thing that we must notice here in this passage in verse 16 is how Paul starts off. He starts off with the word, therefore, which should trigger in our minds that what Paul is about to say, the discourse he's about to begin, his argument he's going to make, is going to be rooted in what he just said. There's going to be a connection there. So as a review then of what we heard last week, the passage right before this, Paul has just encouraged the Colossians and us to treasure our riches that we have received in Christ. The fullness in him, the fellowship with him, and the freedom in him. Paul's instruction in Colossians in our passage today, 16 through 19, are rooted in this. They are rooted in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. That he is reigning over every power, every element of this world, every authority, he reigns supreme. We see this in in verse 15. If we just step back one verse, it says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. This, this is what grounds our passage today. This is what reveals also Paul's tone in this portion of the letter. Do we do we hear this tone? It's, it's an exhortation. It's a, a pep talk, if you will, to stick with our theme. Christ has made a public display triumphing over evil and the rulers of this earth. So then, don't let anyone judge you, Colossians. Don't let anyone try and defraud you or disqualify you from this gospel that you have received. 
from this salvation gift. You don't need anything else. You don't need to add anything to this gospel. You already have received the fullness, the fellowship, and the freedom through Christ. So we move forward in our passage today with this confidence given to us by Christ. So now Paul's ready to make some application for the Colossians. Let's look at verse 16 again. He says, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Instruction number one, don't be judged by mere shadows. The word judge or judgment here in Greek would have implied the meaning to keep you from something. So specifically, we'll see that these false teachers are trying to worry the Colossians into thinking that their salvation might be in question. That the gospel they've heard might actually be incomplete, that there's something missing, that if the Colossians would only observe this feast or abstain from those foods, then they would be able to reach a higher spirituality or actually be able to gain favor with God. But let's not forget that in chapter 1, Paul gives the Colossians the reason why they don't need to be judged, why they don't need to feel condemned by these false teachers. Because they have already been judged by the one true righteous judge who has judged them as righteous. In chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, Paul says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach church this is the good news of the gospel though we were formerly enemies of god we are now justified through christ's life death and resurrection this is also what james means when he says in james 4 12 there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. Who are you who judge your neighbor? This is the reason that the Colossians should not be allowing others to pass judgment on them. Christ has already judged them, and the verdict is out. They are innocent. He has claimed them as righteous. So we see that these false teachers are implying that the maybe the Colossians aren't fully obeying the gospel. So let's look at what basis they're judging the Colossians on. In verse 16 again, therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. So, okay, in our modern day reading of this verse, um, it, it sounds a bit confusing, right? This isn't a verse you're going to see uh, in an Instagram caption. And likely you're not going to make this your life verse though I might persuade you by the end of this morning. But if we look at this closely, if we look at this verse closely, it should make us think of something. It should make us think of the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law. Paul says, first, don't let anyone judge you regarding food or drink. To understand this, we can flip back to Acts 10. 
In Acts 10 is a story of the Apostle Peter receiving a vision from the Lord. Now let me make a caveat here and explain how this vision, the vision that Peter receives here, is different than the visions that these false teachers in Colossae are going to claim to have. So this vision that Peter receives that we're about to look at in just a second is from God, and it's for the expansion of the gospel. It's not a product of anything that Peter has done. No, this is Christ further clarifying the purpose of the old covenant as a shadow and ushering in the new covenant, which has come now in the substance of Christ. So as we'll see in the next few verses, the visions that the false teachers are claiming to have are for worldly gain. They're not originating from Christ, but likely from the pagan religions from the Greek culture around them. Okay, this, this vision that Peter has, it's, it's not just some random person receiving a vision. No, this is the apostle Peter who walked as, as one of Jesus' 12 disciples here on earth. And now he's been charged with the apostolic role of spreading the gospel and growing the church. So with this in mind, let's look at the vision that he receives in Acts 10. So this vision, uh, the sky opens, uh, Peter sees the sky opening, and then a sheet falls to the ground. And, and in this sheet, it un- unfolds, and there's all these type of animals that were prohibited for the Jews to eat under the Mosaic law. And the Lord tells Peter, kill and eat, and all the bacon lovers celebrate. And Peter responds in you know, Peter-like fashion, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything unholy or unclean. And then the Lord responds, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. So this, this vision for Peter occurs three times. And we see now that God has brought forth this new covenant and freedom from the old law that no longer and, and now no longer restricts the Jews in matters of food or drink. We will see Paul later in Colossians, he'll he'll say just in the next verse that this Mosaic law, it pointed forward to something. It pointed toward Christ and is fulfilled in his life. Back back to Acts, if if we skip down in, in Acts 10 to verse 28, Peter has received this vision. He's in a now in a Gentile's house, a, a man named Cornelius. And Peter explains that this vision is concerning Jew and Gentile relationships. Not just, just about food and drinks. So he says in verse 28, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. No longer are the Gentiles excluded from the gospel. It's no longer a state religion. But all are welcomed into the body of Christ. So it doesn't matter what any false teacher in, in the, says to the Colossians. They don't need to feel judged or condemned in matters regarding food or drinks. 
we'll see in a second how Paul is, is indicating that they don't need to feel judged by the entirety of the law. The Gentiles, which likely comprised most of the church in Colossae, now share in the inheritance of the gospel and are ushered into the body of Christ. So in verse 16, we, we see now that Paul has first listed, you don't need to feel judged. You don't need to be judged by food or drink. But then he lists festivals. I'm sorry, let me back up a second. He said food or drink, which these are daily occurrences, right? And at least I hope they are for most of us. But then he lists festivals, which if we look back to the Mosaic law, festivals would, would happen yearly. So we can think of Passover or the festival of booths or the festival of tabernacles. These were all supposed to be celebrated and observed yearly. Then Paul lists that the Colossians shouldn't be judged by new moons, which occur about once a month. And then if we look back to Numbers 28.11, we see that in the Mosaic law, new moons would trigger certain monthly sacrifices to be performed. And then lastly, Paul lists a Sabbath day, which the Israelites, we know, were instructed to keep holy and not do any work on that day and to rest just as God rested on the seventh day of creation. So likely what Paul is doing here, moving from yearly to monthly, weekly, and, and daily with food and drink, is he's linking all these things together to point back to the Jewish calendar, the Jewish sacrificial system, and the entirety of the Mosaic law. So Paul's instruction is this, Colossians, do not listen to criticism that is based on diets and days, the Mosaic law. The false teachers are judging the Colossians for not abiding to the Old Testament laws, even though Christ had already come. They are making the Colossians question their salvation, that if they're not obeying the Mosaic law, are they really saved? Are they really doing all that they should be to please God? Well, how is this applicable to us? Well, church, where are we trying to obtain God's love, his favor, extra spiritual experiences, and have forgotten that Christ has already secured victory over our troubles and over this world? He's demonstrated his unconditional love toward us. So where are we trying to attain these things by our own religiosity? Verse 17, Paul has now told the Colossians they don't need to be judged. And now in verse 17, he'll, he'll explain why, why they don't need to be judged, why they are not disqualified from the body of Christ. Paul just finished listing food, drink, festivals, or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Now he says in verse 17, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let's take a quick sidebar here before we jump into verse 17 and remind ourselves of who the author is, who Paul is. In Philippians 3, 5, Paul describes himself. He says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he was circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. So, so that's a thumbs up for Paul. He was born of the tribe of Benjamin. That's another thumbs up, I guess. And he was a trained Pharisee. 
Well, this guy's got it all. He's got a career in religious studies. And as Parker shared a few weeks ago, explaining Paul's conversion, he has now encountered Christ and has been called to the ministry to the Gentiles. So let's not forget that perhaps Paul is the, almost the most qualified, one of the most qualified Jews to understand the Old Testament law and its relevance for the Colossians here in light of the new covenant. So as he says in verse 17, he, being, he begins explaining this, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. See, Paul understood these things. He understood the Mosaic law inside and out. He understood that these things were pointing toward something, toward someone, toward Christ. So then, Colossians, stop living as if Christ has not come by thinking you need to uphold the Old Testament law. See, he's adamant about this. One commentator, Scott McKnight, says, this is as personal as it is theological for Paul. Paul lived this transformation. He spent his whole life up to the point of his conversion trying to follow the law. He would observe these feasts and festivals and he would abstain from foods and he would keep the Sabbath holy. But now after his conversion, he's able to understand and teach in great detail how the law was only a shadow pointing toward Christ. He doesn't want the Colossians to take a step back from this gospel that they have received or feel that they need to add anything to it. See, Paul's contrasting a shadow and the substance of this shadow or the reality of the shadow. Why should the Colossians be focused on a shadow when the substance is before them? You know, if someone comes walking around a corner and we see their shadow, once they turn the corner, we're not still going to be looking at a shadow. We're going to be looking at a person. Paul has just spent almost two chapters proclaiming the supremacy of this substance of christ the colossians needed to know that the new covenant had come that they did not need to observe the mosaic law paul's reassuring them of their fullness and fellowship and freedom in christ and that they have been grafted into the body not based on anything that they did but simply because of Christ. So the question, as we have seen, that Paul is seeking to answer here for the Colossians is, do they need to follow the Old Testament law in order to please God or in order for their salvation? And Paul's answer is no. The substance is here and the shadow is now obsolete. So if you would... Permit me one implication, application here of this passage for us today. It's concerning the view of Sabbath keeping. While I know there's various views regarding how Christians now should observe the Sabbath, I would like to make the case that according to this passage, and in light of the salvation era, that we should see the Sabbath commandment as a shadow 
which has now been fulfilled in the person of Christ. See, the Israelites were commanded by God to rest on the seventh day of the week, just as God rested on the seventh day of creation. And he blessed that day and he made it holy. It was a shadow of the rest and relief from human toil. Now, now us, we as Christians nowadays, we rest daily in Christ's work on the cross. And we continue to look forward to a future eternal rest when all our human toil is over. The curse is gone and we enjoy an everlasting rest in Christ. This is what many scholars refer to as living in the already and not yet of the fulfillment of Christ's work and looking forward to his second coming. If you'd like to study this in further detail, about nine years ago, Pastor Mark preached three sermons on Hebrews 3 and 4, which deal in greater detail with this topic of rest and the Mosaic law and Christ's fulfillment of it. I would encourage you to take a listen. See, the shadow is not bad. Paul's not calling the shadow bad or irrelevant. But the this, this, this shadow was God-given, but it was for a specific time, place, and people. Yet the shadow is caused by a substance of which is greater than the shadow itself. So as we see in a parallel passage here, Hebrews 10, 1, the author says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. And then if we move down to Verse 4, again, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The substance has come, yet the false teachers are worrying the Colossians into thinking that they still need the shadow, that they still need to observe these Jewish traditions, and at the very least, continual observance of these traditions will grant them a higher spirituality. Are we focused on shadows? Church, are we more interested in our religion than we are with our relationship? Are we more interested in our religious observances than we are with our relationship with Christ? See, our rituals should feed into our relationship with Christ. Paul wants the Colossians and he wants us to be steadfast to be firmly rooted in the gospel that we have received and to have the confidence that we are a part of the body of Jesus Christ, which then leads him into his second instruction, which we'll see in verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Instruction number two, be on guard, Colossians, for the ego-inflated, self-admiring false teachers. What we hear in this verse is is Paul's intensity. It, It jumps up a notch, if not two or three here. 
Paul doesn't just say, don't be judged again. No, he says, don't let anyone defraud you. Or as the ESV translates this, let no one disqualify you. See, the action is now stated. It's no longer an action of the mind, but an action of behavior. The false teachers are attempting to disqualify the Colossians because, well, the Colossians certainly aren't as impressive as as they are. They're not receiving visions or practicing intense bodily disciplines. In this verse, Paul gives four characteristics of these false teachers. And then he'll give a fifth right at the beginning of verse 19. The first categorization, characterization of these false teachers is by delighting in self-abasement, or again, as uh, the ESV translates this, asceticism. Scott mentioned this briefly last week. This asceticism was a, a grueling, harsh disciplining of the body that in Greek culture was supposed to invoke a supernatural experience. So this leads us into the second characteristic of these false teachers, which is the worshiping of angels. Many scholars think that what's being referenced here and what's being taught was, was what was taught in Greek culture, that the intense disciplining of the body would invoke this spiritual experience or, or gain access to some hidden knowledge. This worshiping of the angels could take on the form of petitioning the angels for protection against evil spirits or, again, to receive some hidden knowledge or some hidden information, which if we look back at the Greco-Roman culture, excuse me, this was the greatest pursuit. This was the epitome of life, was philosophy and, and knowledge. It doesn't sound too far off from our culture, does it? Church, don't think that we are void from this warning and instruction from Paul. This asceticism, this self-abasement is prevalent in our culture. Why do so many people try and gain mastery over their bodies and over their minds through going to the gym or worldly meditation as means to empty our bodies, empty our minds of the things which haunt us, stress, anxiety, depression. Why are we not turning toward Christ? Crossroads, I ask, what are we turning towards? Are they worldly coping habits or is Christ all that we need? Or are we seeking out worldly means in order to achieve a higher spiritual experience or give a more pleasing outwardly appearance? The third characteristic of these false teachers was their boasting in these visions or spiritual experiences that they claim to have received or claim to have by this, this disciplining of harsh disciplining of their body, this asceticism. Now, remember what I said earlier, that these visions are not from the world, but they're, they're originating from the pagan culture and religions around them. And therefore, 
the pursuit of fleshly gain, not for the advancement of the gospel. So it's even thought that some of what these false teachers are doing is, is they are using these visions as means of, of teaching, as the subject of their false teachings that they're trying to invade in the church here in Colossae. These visions would have been very appealing to the Colossians. It would have made them appear more knowledgeable, more prestigious, because in the Greco-Roman culture, Greek mythology, uh, mysticism, various spiritual, supernatural cults were very prevalent. And, And it wasn't just practiced by those who considered themselves religious. No, it was practiced by everyone. It was embedded in culture. So Paul is is refuting a worldly pursuit. He's saying that these false teachers are encouraging these things but are inflated without cause. These things are meaningless. It's a counter-cultural instruction. Watch out for the society and cultural values where you live. Colossians, don't be defrauded or disqualified from the prize, the fullness, the freedom, fellowship with Christ. You, you don't need these things to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said it himself in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not about an outwardly appearance or receiving some visions or having some supernatural experience or having some hidden knowledge that others don't have. No, it's about knowing Christ. It's about walking in him that brings eternal treasure. The next thing and the the fourth thing that characterizes these teachers is that they are puffed up, inflated in their fleshly minds without cause. Paul warns against this ego inflation in in many of his letters, but in his letter, his first letter to Corinthians, chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Knowledge makes arrogant, but love, love edifies. Colossians, don't be defrauded. Don't be deceived into thinking you need to have some visions, some supernatural experience by this harsh treatment of your body. These false teachers are futile in their hollow boasting. There's no substance to it. I know it looks good on the outside, but they are empty. They're inflated without cause. Have we fallen prey to the cunningness of worldly values? Is our faith swayed by outwardly appearances or feel-good emotions? Impressive scientific data. Do we feel we need something more than Christ to measure up to those around us? Or are we the ones who are puffed up, boasting in our spiritual experiences or our spiritual knowledge? What the Colossians are facing is not far or at a distance from us. These challenges and temptations are present in our church today. Crossroads, may we be rooted in Christ, guided by love and humility, regarding others as more significant than ourselves. 
So in verse 19, Paul makes his last characterization of these false teachers. And then he reminds the Colossians where their unity and their growth comes from. So as a continuation of of Paul's thought, his instruction in verse 18, he says in verse 19, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. Hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to one another. The last thing that characterizes these false teachers and most important is they are not connected to the head. And as we saw in chapter 1, verse 18, the head is Christ. These false teachers are detached from true Christian community. Paul's warning is very clear. It's irrelevant what those who are outside of the body of Christ are telling you about the gospel. If they're not connected to us, then of course they're going to speak nonsense. But we have Christ who again has demonstrated his total power and authority over every element of this world. He alone is supreme. And what a privilege it is to be invited into his body, to be connected with him, to be called sons and daughters of the Most High King. Christ is supreme. He is head of the church. And in him, all our needs are supplied for. And using this analogy of, of Christ as the head and church as the body, Paul's highlighting the role of the church for us. First thing that Paul does is state Christ as the head, which gives direction and it gives sustenance to the body. Then he exhorts the Colossians, pursue unity. Do we, do we see that in the next verse? Being held together by the joints and the ligaments. The body needs to strive for unity, and this unity comes only from Christ. Only through his provision can we be united together as one body. And it's through this unity that we grow and become more like Christ. The application for us, how should this impact us as a body of Christ? Well, are we seeking growth in Christ connected to our church body? Or are we seeking growth experiences, supernatural experiences elsewhere? So in closing, Paul does not want us to be misinformed here. He knows that the Colossians, it's, it's tempting what they're, what they're facing. He knows what the false teachers, what it looks like, what it sounds like. But like a good scout team, Paul's giving us some insight, helping us prepare for our opponents, the temptations of the flesh and the worldly teachings of the society around us. But yet, like a wise coach, he's reminding us of how we will beat our opponents. It's not by focusing on the false teachings or the philosophies of this world, but on Christ We should be so rooted in him that we are ready to defend our faith and be steadfast in the truth. As 1 Peter 3, 15 says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, not in boasting. Church, our application is this. Nothing needs to be added to the gospel. 
We need to seek steadfastness in Christ and be on guard for any gospel that does not have Christ at its center. It's not about a religion. It's about our relationship with Christ. It's not about an outwardly appearance or having some visions or some hidden knowledge, but our steadfastness and truth. Christ is sufficient for all our needs. Do we believe this? Or are we letting the values, teachings, and egos of this world keep us from unity as a church? Are we as a church nourished and knit together in unity as an extension from our connectedness to Christ? Maybe hear the warnings of, and instructions of Paul to the Colossians and recognize that their situation is it's not at a distance from us. I pray that we are steadfast in Christ's supremacy over our lives, the church, and the world around us. Let me pray for us, and while I pray, I'll invite the worship team up for one last song. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Thank you for reigning supreme over our lives and over the world that we live in. I pray that we would be on guard from the evils of the world around us and seek to be steadfast in your word, guided by love, and grow in unity and connectedness to you. In Jesus' name, amen.